You're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. So today I'm sitting in the offices of Datrium with Tim Page. Hi, Tim. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Great, thanks. Good, thanks good. for coming. And Cesar Reddy. Hey, good to see hey, you again, Cesar. Chris. Yeah, you too. Absolutely. So we're, we're here uh, in your office. Tim, your CEO. That's right. Cesar, the CTO. So I've got pretty much everybody I need to in this, in this <laughs> room to talk about the subject we're going to talk about today, and that's hybrid cloud. And the reason I thought this is a good uh, topic to talk to you about is because clearly, from your perspective, your platform, which of course you've just got a new release of, is very much focused on the idea of hybrid cloud. It would be good today to talk through that and understand exactly why people should be deploying hybrid cloud, whether they really are, whether it's a myth, whether people are actually talking about it or not, and then you know what you're seeing in the real world. How does that sound? Yeah, sounds good. Excellent. Okay, so let's do a bit of a reality check to start start us off. How real do you think, Cesala, the idea of hybrid and multi-cloud is? And and even perhaps, can you put a definition on what people might think those two things mean? Yes. So the definition from a perspective, the hybrid cloud is a representation of having some workloads on your data center and being able to transport them to a cloud vendor like Amazon, Azure. That is the definition of hybrid cloud. Multi-cloud is a broader definition. It involves having your workloads be able to be transportable across multiple different public clouds like Amazon, Azure, and GCP. It may or may not include the private cloud, but sometimes it does. Hybrid cloud for sure includes the on-prem data center. Okay, so I would say from some of the putting some extra definition to that, if I was an organization, I could be quite happily multi cloud today. So I could be using, for instance, Office 365 for my email. I could be running some services on prem, and I might have something in the private, in the public cloud. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're all connected, does it, Tim? Just, no. You know, they could be running completely separately. That's right. And that's, I think that's a big challenge. If you look at what organizations are looking for today at a CIO level, companies are moving quick. Right, So there's all kinds of this talk around you need to have instant outcomes in what you do, which means you've got to digitally transform, which means you've got to change the way, I'll call it, you do IT. So the purpose of cloud in the first place is to take advantage of services that can be existed and created quickly in some form or fashion. So to be able to, to move to you know, a public cloud or some other is usually, is usually a, a way to take, you know, to take advantage of a service that's offered. So whether it's just hosting a platform, software platform, or whether it's you know, some type of capability of backup or recovery or that type of thing. What organizations are challenged with, whether you're in the data center or in the cloud, is those different instantiations of what they have to do have to be tied together. And that's the challenges every organization has. Because most vendors aren't, they, they do something really well, but they don't do, they're not really open to, to do everything well. Right. So it's tough because you can't move data around efficiently and you can't take advantage of the different things you need to do with the data. So at the end of the day, it's about the data. <laughs> um, that's what we believe. I think that's what everybody says when you talk to them. It, it, you know, we look at this and think there's lots of infrastructure out there, but really we're talking about how you use your, your business's data. That's the key feature, isn't it, really? That is correct. But every business ultimately is deciding what, what they want to do with the data. It's all about price performance. It's about moving at speed, and it's about risk mitigation. So they'll make the decisions based on those three factors. No matter, they don't really care about the cloud so much. They care about these three things about the business. So do you think um, workloads are really, truly portable these days? I mean, genuinely, Tim, do you think that 
although people might say, yeah, we, we've got a hybrid strategy or we've got a, a multi-cloud strategy, do you think people are really moving stuff around dynamically enough to, to save those um, uh, costs? Not today. Uh, I think the desire is to get there. So, so people talk about, I have a cloud-first strategy. I, I think if I reinterpret what that means, and I've asked a lot of CEOs that, it means I don't want to have a data center with a bunch of costs in my data center. Right. right? And I want to take the advantage of what someone has to offer with a service that I don't have to create myself. Right? In the old yeah. days, people would have huge teams, right? big financial firms that have tens of people managing different stovepipes of what they did. But they never got to really leverage the data. Nowadays, with technology being as advanced, I think the desire's there, but no one really knows how to take advantage of that today. Yeah, okay. So let's, let's go on and talk about platforms, Cesala. One of the things that I think is very interesting is, and we've seen this in the evolution of, I guess, the last 15 years, virtual machines, and especially VMware, everybody talks about VMware as the center of all of this. You know, and to be fair to them, you know, they've done an incredible job. But we still see, really, virtual machines as the, probably the prime deployment model of applications. But we are starting to see containers come along. So what's your, um, what's your, your sort of view of the market? How have you been seeing it? Yeah, so there are about 100 million VMware VMs in the world today. That's like not, not going away, and it's growing 10% every year because it's convenient, because it's easy to think about that way. To transform from that, what we are also seeing is that there is a lot of movement in Kubernetes in some of the larger organizations. It's partly because... If you want to be in this new modern instant economy world, you have to uh, produce services rapidly. And to produce services rapidly, it's a very developer-focused environment. So developers prefer something which is easily, and they can do the CI/CD models very, very fast. To do that, you need a new platform. You need Kubernetes, which is lightweight. You can spin up, you can upgrade. So there, the developers are pushing Kubernetes more rapidly than what IT is kind of pushing it. So it's a very developer-focused versus the old traditional way of doing IT. That's a dichotomy, but as Kubernetes is there, I don't know if you've gone to KubeCon, there are 10,000 people in KubeCon. Yeah, and that's more than, um, than well, for instance, at DockerCon. And you could have looked at Docker and said, Docker seemed to be the sort of the, the leader of containers, at, say, three or four years ago, but Kubernetes has sort of massively overtaken them and become the de facto, almost pretty much the de facto standard for container deployment. Yeah, I think the Docker world was good. They introduced the concepts and everything else. But I think what was missing was the layer of orchestration. You always need yeah. something on top of it to make it, just like VMware was good when, when they built Hypervisor, but they needed the vSphere, that, you know, the vCenter to actually make it like look solid. Yeah. And, and would you say the same thing um, for VMware themselves within server virtualization? Because they have effectively become the de facto standard there. Yeah, yeah. they have. And, it's, and the reason is because it's convenient, because it's, uh, it's, and the, the, it's also the ecosystem. The ecosystem matters. How many people, other vendors, are able to innovate and on that ecosystem and build new new products? Like Datrim exists because of VMware. In some degree, the cloud exists because of VMware, right? They made the virtualization be possible. That is a good point, actually. You know, you, it is an ecosystem onto which you can then deploy whatever, I guess, you know, including the way that you're, you're working, which we will, you know, we'll touch on in a moment. So what about the mix? How are you seeing the mix of that? Because obviously, if virtual machines have been up until now the de facto standard, and people from the development side are pushing the idea of containers, how are those two things playing out? Are we seeing containers gradually increasing percentage, or are they sitting as still as a small slice there? No, it wants to grow. The containers of the Kubernetes world wants to grow because of the developer push, because they get control of it. But as soon as it becomes more than a toy, 
the, the, the enterprises would like to, IT, IT folks are involved then, they're like, okay, what do I do? How do I make it mission critical? How do I do backups? How do I get performance? How do I do like DR strategy? Those are the questions pop up now. So Kubernetes is in a stage where VMware used to be like 10 years ago when it kind of came out with no data services. It's in the same stage as, the, as that point. Yeah. That, that, so Tim, I think that's really interesting because from a, from a say, CIO's perspective, I guess that's the sort of person you would, you would talk to CEOs and CIOs, um, I guess, generally in, yeah. in your discussions yeah. within, within um, uh, what you do. It seems to me that with, that, with all of those technologies, you, you get a, a groundswell of somebody saying, this could be so much better for us. And then actually reality sets in where people start going, but actually operational process tells me I can't really use that because I don't know how the compliance is going to work or how my backup and date protection is going to work. You know, there, there does have to be that reality check about the adoption of those technologies. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. And a big piece of, big piece of me being at Daytrium was the approach that the founders took really ahead of its time in the development, right, of, of, of the platform. And I'll give you an example where it's kind of coming to fruition. So I talked to about, I brought seven CEOs and with their groups to look at Daytrium before I came to really go into, is this groundbreaking? Because all these companies pop up constantly in the Valley, yeah. right? They go to market in 18 months and they have like a niche of something, backup, secondary storage, you know, hyperconverged something. So real example is one of one of the people we talked to, we can't name them yet, went to a big service provider in Q4, in Q3 and 4. They did a four-month, as you know, they put you through the grind. Absolutely. Yeah. Four-month grind on us. And they had already told another vendor in the hyper-converged market that they were going to win a big piece of it. But ended up, they were putting their entire private cloud on something. End of the day, they ended up going with us 100%. We did a big deal in Q4. We'll do a lot more this year. And the reason for that is is the intelligence we put around, I'll call the data services we put around containers and Kubernetes. So a big piece of decision-making was we're faster, easier, bigger. You can throw virtualized workloads in, but it was because we can put intelligence around Kubernetes. So they're actually coming in in a couple of weeks as we are developing or finalizing. We already started development on that platform um, because we believe, to your point, the worlds are going to merge, and at some point, you know, a dev- DevOps-type thing um, like Kubernetes is probably going to be effective. Yeah. I, I think um, I'm still not really sure yet, but I'm really interested to try and understand what people are thinking about this, uh, Cesar, and that's if we have got the idea that we could run some applications within a container and we could run even the same application within a VM, are we going to find it more easy to move applications around and are we going to find it more difficult to make the right choice about which package we should run that application within? I think it depends on the, uh, the who is driving this. If it's developer-focused, they're going to choose the one which is the most fastest lifecycle development. So I'm a developer myself, write a lot of code, so I'm looking for speed of improvement and what I can do in my daily life. If anything is impeding me, my progress, if I have to talk to an IT person to get a VM and test it out, that's not going to work for me. I will do whatever it takes to actually move at light speed. So even if that was fully automated, even if you could go onto a portal, click a button, and that VM would be built for you and be there in like... 20 minutes, is that it's still not good enough? No, I need something in like five seconds. Right, okay. Otherwise, I'm wasting my time, and developers will move, always move towards something which is faster and easier to deploy. The test debug cycle has to be super fast. But it, that's, it feels like that's almost like being unrealistic, but I guess with containers, it's, it, it isn't unrealistic. It's, it's not unrealistic, realistic. actually. It's a, it's a, that is the thing, is that if you look at a developer mindset, I, I was like developing for like for so many years, like that's all I think thought about, like you know, how do I save my time I don't want to wait and spin my wheels. I want to just get... Because if I write some code, I want to see if it's going to work for me right now. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise it, it, it slows me down a lot. 
So that's kind of where it's going to driving force is going to come from. Every developer mindset is like that. So I used to write a lot of code actually in the my, my early days, but I did it when we had batch and when you had to submit a batch job to actually compile your code. And the one thing I remember at the time was I would find any way to try and put my my job into a higher performance group or to basically trick getting my job up a queue before anybody mm-hmm. else's. I didn't really care about whether that was right or wrong for the system. Yep. All I was bothered about was I'm going to see if I can get my job ahead of everybody that, else. That's exactly right. Chris, so raising yourself. I developed back in that day too. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so... Yeah. I got into, I, did, I spent into, a lot of money on tools, <laughs> and I, I spent a lot of money and my own personal money, by the way, to buy the tool because companies right. sometimes wouldn't 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 buy, they wouldn't approve those those those, those budgets. So I would just buy my own stuff just yeah. to get make myself faster in how I can develop stuff. Yeah. Okay. So what about the data then? So you think, okay, I can develop that application really quickly. Now I've got an issue because so somehow, especially if I want to run that container in public cloud or somewhere, now I've got an issue with the data. Because if I'm taking data from a source that isn't in the same location, I've got a, a second problem that I need to somehow populate the data in that application. Yeah, so as a developer, again, going back to that, I didn't, I didn't really so much care about what is, the, what is the persistent of the data. I just cared about writing the data as fast, amazing, my UI looks awesome, but I never yeah. cared about the process of what it takes to actually make the data stable, persistent, and have compliance and all that stuff. That then falls to the IT folks. Ninety folks are now struggling with, okay, what do I do with this thing, this Kubernetes thing? People say, want performance. What do I do with that? People want, I mean, I got to think of backup because that's all they're trained about, right? As a business requirement, training to do, compliance, backup, DR, all these things they have to do. And there's no tools existing. So they're struggling with that, which is why I think we have a, we, that's why I think that's such an open opportunity in this space today. And you have to have some of these functions, data services, really well built for Kubernetes. You need a, you need a, you need to treat containers as a first-class citizen for your data services platform. Right. Okay. I think, um, you know, I, I look at it and think that we talk about things like the development environment and how we can get data there. But actually, it then only really comes back to the real world in terms of how do you actually get that into production and how do the businesses actually do it. Do you think, um, Tim, that vendors are sort of, sorry, customers tend to step back a bit and think, oh, this is going to get complicated to implement? So therefore, they decide, well, we won't go down that route of using that technology because we don't really know how it's going to affect things like DR and uh, you know resilience and so on. Fundamental reason Daytrim exists, <laughs> it was to, we, you know, the, the founders came from a background of heavy storage, encryption, dedupe, backup, protection, VM type thing. So the fundamental thesis of how Daytrim was formed was to look at not simplifying, everybody says, but automating the basic data center, data movement practices that have to happen, which is a big task. Because to think of not having storage management and not having to have an actual separate backup uh, type mechanism and actually being able to do your DR strategy, done DR for years way in the back, and you talk to any anyone in IT, they'll tell you it's super complicated if they can actually perform DR. Well, the D they can do, the, the, uh, the backup they can do, the restore they have a hard time doing. So I agree. Most data centers now are kludge of a whole bunch of technologies they thought was going to be better, simpler, easier, and it ended up just being a little different of the same thing. And now they have to manage, you know, disparate stovepipes of things. You know that um, storage people are paranoid, don't you? Well, they should be because they built big arrays and sa- <laughs> you know. I was telling somebody the day it's funny. I'm, I'm old, a little bit older now, but I remember literally <clears throat> seeing new things about sand technology as I was walking out of Blockbuster back in the mid '90s. 
Right? Okay. Because that's what was yeah, kind of yeah. coming out, right? Yeah, yeah. Big story we'll area network was the big thing. Yeah. And having just gotten out of college and really getting going 10 years prior, I was like, wow, this could really revolutionize what's going on, right? So I picked up my StarTech phone and started talking about it. That's the same tech that's being used in data centers today. So that's where I get passionate going. The, the thought that you have to set up a storage area network, mask all your lines to where you're going, assign VMs to, like, it's a huge process. So... Yeah, I think it's super complicated, and I don't think anybody's thought out of the box for you know at least 10 years. So I'll argue since VMware, kind of virtualized that whole front end, nobody's done anything to the back end. Nobody, yeah. right? You could argue maybe Pure did as far as technology goes, maybe, but it was just implementing faster tech. It's not really implementing the processes behind data movement. Yeah, it was more $6 million man, wasn't it? It was better, faster, stronger. It was that sort of the solution <laughs> rather than it being completely radical and a replacement. But, but I think the problem there is that because data is the thing that is persistent and at rest and has the value, you know, if an, if an application server crashes and you reboot it, it's like, well, okay, that didn't really sort of yeah. cost me anything other than time right. or an outage. But if somebody says, oh, well, that array crashed, and all that data that we've been recording for the last 12 months is gone. Yeah. That's a very different scenario <clears throat> to have right. to deal with. And I think possibly if you look at the history of storage and, and storage area networks, people have relied on it because they weren't really that trusting of anything else that was coming along. And possibly, Cesar, is because when you look at all those different functions you're trying to fit into a storage strategy, shall we say, there was a lot to try and there was a lot of moving parts to try and deal with. Yeah. So also what has changed now is that if you look at the consumers are driving the businesses. Every consumer wants instant access to their services. So unless you transform your company to be that way, you're going to die. My kids are ruthless. If their application is not responding in two seconds, they switch away to something else. So that's what businesses are facing is that every consumer wants instant gratification. If you're not satisfying them, you're done. This is what we mean by digital transformation is that you have to satisfy the end users. So to do that, you need infrastructure which moves at light speed. I think if you look at that's why people are willing to try new stuff now which is why SAN is going to go away because people just don't have patience anymore. Also, there's no more skill sets. You know, people don't have skills anymore to manage that complex complexity. Yeah. We all used to simple devices in our, in, our, in our life, and but yet here we are trying to manage this complex beast. So I'm, I'm going to put, um, put a stake in the ground and say, I don't think the technology will go away per se. I think what will happen is we'll see something that happened with the mainframe and with mid, um, mid-range systems. They'll shrink to being niche, but people will keep them for a purpose. But the majority of technology will move somewhere else. It's like virtualization, 70, 80, 90% of servers are now virtual. But people still keep one or two servers for, for yep. another purpose. And I think that's what will happen with SAN. It will basically shrink into the, into the background, but it will still be needed for certain very specific niches. But then that's, I think that's probably the case with any technology, to be honest. Some people Not still there. use physical servers yeah, because Oracle licensing, whatever. Absolutely, yeah, because of Oracle, you know, yeah. And then so those are going to be still there. I mean, that's, gonna, that's fine. So what about the alignment of primary and secondary data? Because here's an example. Imagine I'm running on-prem, and I've been running on-prem for a while, and I decide I'm going to run some stuff in the public cloud. And this is where it comes back to this, do I really run a hybrid environment? So I've got a VM, because we're using VMs today, and I shift my VM to a public cloud provider, and it runs there for six months, um, and I've been backing it up in the public cloud somehow, and then somebody goes, oh, we've had an issue. My data that I want to restore is from that copy that's sitting on-prem somewhere. How do I get my on-prem restore into the cloud copy in a timely fashion? Yep. Now, that to me has always been one of the issues with any sort of hybrid in architecture is that somehow the backup or the data protection process has to follow the primary data. Because if it doesn't, you might have no idea where you back that VM up, yep. especially if it moves around once a week. 
and you could be in a real mess where you go, I've no idea where that went or where we backed it up from, or which one's the most concurrent. So from my perspective, I've always thought the two solutions would have to be linked somehow. Especially with the public cloud and the hybrid cloud model, I think it's forcing convergence. So we saw this coming like five years ago in the sense that if you don't converge your services, especially the, and it's not just backup, it's a primary storage, you know, backup DR, the, you know, the functionality you need to do actually make things move back and forth. Yes. When I said DR, I mean mobility. And it's easy to, it's easy to say, it's very easy. And I'm probably very guilty of it, of saying backup and DR in the same scenario. What I, what I mean by that is, I should really say BCDR, I guess. BCDR. You know, your business continuity of being able to restore your application and keep the business running rather than pure physical backup. And, and backup, I think, is the, is the mechanics of doing it. BCDR yeah. is the outcome that you're looking to achieve. So every, every customer I talk to, they, the, the challenge with hybrid cloud is that if you move from place to place, does it look uniform to you? You can't change your processes. You can't change your scripting and everything else. So you need two layers. You need a virtualization layer, which looks the same to you because you, your scripting all works like the way. And you can't train everybody else. You also need a data plane to be consistent no matter where you go. So if you're on-prem, if you have primary backup, DR, encryption, all those things, if you go to the new place, it has to look exactly the same. Otherwise, it's not going to work for you. And people are not willing, not willing to accept that, which is why I think hybrid cloud adoption is there. But to actually make it really solid, make it properly working for enterprises, you need all these functions to go with the wherever the data, data goes. So the company, Datrim, is founded around the data, and we have data services around it. Not like the boxes. Boxes is not what we are trying to sell. We're trying to sell data services which surround the data so that data moves, the functions move with it. So uh, this might be a good opportunity for just to spend two minutes for anybody who doesn't really know what your technology looks like and just cover that now. And then maybe we can discuss some good real-world examples that you've seen already. So who's best to posi- who's in the best position to tell us what the technology is? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Okay. Sazal built it, so he's going to jump in. Yeah. <laughs> but listening through great conversation, Chris, and realistically on where are companies in this transition to hybrid, multi, et cetera, um, and then looking at how realistic is it for them to get there, degree, you know, mainframes are still around, SANS may still stay around, well, there's a difference between open systems and, you know, so who knows, right? Yeah. They'll stay around to an extent. Daytrim's founded, and this is a big piece of, of how we started. It's important. So I start off by saying a lot of these companies will come up and have to get to market because of their venture backing in 18 months. Everybody does it. Where you architect, you stay. Right. When I got out of um, being one of the founding three guys of VCE, when I got out of that, first 15 years of my career was ERP and application. I was headed back there until I met these guys and understood they actually took the time and were mature enough, both the investing community and them, to purposefully take four years with 100 coders in the valley, $130 million, automating all the hard stuff we just talked about. Yeah. Right. So people don't do hard things. We've done hard things. Right. All sales pitches aside, it's hard to rewrite your file system and put a log-based system in place and have the dynamics that you need for storage at the same time, um, the sequential type um, algorithms you need for backup, and then DR is completely different than backup, right? So five things they set out to put in place were primary, backup, DR, mobility, super important for cloud, and encryption. So at point of inception and on the fly, if you keep your data encrypted and moved and compressed and deduped on both ends, you're going to get a really efficient, I'll call it architecture. Architecture now should be virtualized. Yep. Uh, that's what we set out to do. And that's what we just completed was that fifth leg six years later, which was down to instantiate uh, full DR and the ability to do testing on DR. So we are, we are defined by, we sell typically into most storage budgets. So they either buy us for hyperconverged 
or for big resilient storage. We're focused on the enterprise, so we're we're going after the big array vendors. We're not trying to get the bottom feeder people that have a niche play. Yeah. So people say, hey, do you compete with so-and-so or this backup company or that thing? It's like, no, they're kind of just collateral damage because you don't need them if you've taken the time to create a platform that really is truly virtualized, right? We think VMware, we love VMware. We're not going to go create our own hypervisor, right? Crazy. We're not going to go create our own cloud. Crazy. Why wouldn't you take the mainstream what exists and look forward speaking? We know things are going to Kubernetes. We're going to embrace the hell out of Kubernetes and be able to. So our ability to transfer data, um, I was telling somebody the other day, you know, if every data center in the world shut down, we'd still be in business because we don't care where we reside. That's one. One of the things we did then, we always say, hey, what is it customers are looking for? And we start with what the consumer is looking for and we build it that way. So what we've built, we've built really solidly which is why we can close big enterprise accounts. Yeah. Um, and that's where we're heading and have proved over the last three quarters we, we can do. But you also have to watch the pricing models around it. And that's the other piece that, that I'll call it the six leg of the stool was, how do you price so people have to get locked into a big array vendor? If you look at what array vendors are doing, and we've all worked from over the years, they announced the same thing with the same software with a couple updates, and they got to put their cages close to the cloud because they don't sell the cage, they make no profit. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing big array vendors that are almost going out of business or having a problem to coming off the market. They're getting together. So you got, you know, two drunk guys standing up going, hey, let's keep each other up and keep selling hardware. So if you're completely software focused, you can't commoditize your own stack. So we're, we're literally seeing these big array vendors like that's great for a time. People still buy mainframes. Yeah. People are still going to buy big arrays. But if you're buying cages as your virtualization strategy, you're buying the wrong thing. Okay. And that's what we purpose set out to do. Okay, so from all of that, I, I gleaned that your product was software. Software. <laughs> and I agree with all the sort of the back, yeah. back story there. But, says Aleph, just filling that out for other people who might not understand what you're offering here, it's effectively hyper-converged. It's a software-defined converged um, architect platform. Yeah. And we converge out of data services, the five things we talked about, primary storage, backup, DR, and encryption and mobility. It's a one platform to, uh, to kind, of, kind of run your virtualized workloads and be able to protect them and be able to move them to anywhere you want to do. That's kind of fundamental. And then we have deployment models. Yeah. We can deploy in the cloud. We can deploy on-prem in two different ways. One is hyperconvergence model, and one of them is actually we call split provision storage. So there's a different choices you can deploy our software in. So I would say, um, I'm going to say it could be serendipitous, but it might, probably wasn't. <laughs> but if you look at the way that public cloud's gone with um, VMware wanting to run vSphere in public cloud, supporting a VMware platform just gives you the ability to run wherever you like. I think that's great because you need the consistent experience of the, uh, of the, you know, the vCenter because you can't suddenly switch from one place to the other, especially temporarily if you're going to moving back and forth, like if it's been DR. Yeah. You can't change like that, 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 that behavior. So sometimes I see uh, some vendors talking about backup. They can do DR to the cloud. I just don't get it. Like you can't convert your VMs into Amazon VMs or something like that and then expect it to work for you. I'm really sort of skeptical about a lot of that stuff simply because I know how hard it is just to replicate between two storage arrays. Never mind sit there and look at things like the networking and, uh, you know, application latency and all those other things that suddenly sort of pop out of the woodwork that make it really, really hard. And never mind the fact that you have to automate all of that somehow to make it, as you said, seamless so that if, and this is always my test is, if all of your IT department were wiped out or just, you know, we're not there tomorrow, could somebody else come along and actually work out how to do that DR yeah. and get your company back running? If, they can't, if you can't, your DR strategy doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the, so the, the technology process at the bottom end has to be simple and enough to allow so that process to happen. So our demos are so simple. 
you cannot tell the difference whether we failed over from site to site or site to the cloud. It just looks that that that. that is that a problem then? That when you demo stuff, people go, oh, that wasn't that exciting. Because it, it is too well, good. Well, it's, it's exciting because they've never seen a demo of a DR working. Okay. So it's exciting right. from yeah. that It's actually a big selling tool. Yeah, we've, we've counted. We've done over 120 demos in two months. Because I've been in many of those. Wow. It, just in this product we just released. But the, it looks the same as it's on-prem or off-prem. They've never seen actually hitting the button and instantiate in an Amazon instance and be able to back up to that. They've never seen right. it. It looks so, the same. I want to add one, one more thing about this backup and yeah, the, sure. the convergence. So if you want to do it, so basically DR is a very, very awesome use case for public cloud. I mean, if you are if you can make it work, a lot of people love it because they can get it at second data centers sitting there, right? So to do this, right, you need to think about how to be cost efficient for 51 weeks in a year. And then you have to, for one week, you can run workloads. It may be expensive a little bit, but that's okay. So to make it cost efficient, you have to use S3 and, and be do dedupe there and all that stuff. So generally backup vendors are okay with that. Like they generally tend to be more uh, attuned to like being able to save that. But backup vendors are not primary vendors. Yeah. The primary vendors, unfortunately, have designed their architecture for the all flash, whatever. They're not going to be able to live in the S3. So backup vendors are the one living in the S3 a little bit. They can be able to move your data there. But to bring up your workloads with, you know, if you want to, if you have a disaster, you want to push a button and bring up your workloads. To bring up a workloads, backup vendors are not primary vendors. So how are they going to do this workload? You know, just bring up the workloads. You have to do rehydration. It takes two days to rehydrate. So this convergence of backup, primary, all of them working on S3 is unique capabilities. That's what we built, set out to build. We said this is an opportunity for us. Who can do this? And as you know, storage vendors can't change who they are. Fundamentally, that's why storage vendors take 10 years to change anything. When dedupe came out, I was a data domain, right? took 10 years before somebody added dedupe into their products. Yeah, I think it's a good opportunity to sort of segue into real-world examples because that DR scenario is a great example, if not from the, the fact that you've just highlighted probably one of the best use cases of that, and that's you rarely need DR. So why are you paying for it 52 weeks of the year uh, when that one week that you might need it, or you might not even need it at all, you actually only really should be paying for the time you really need it. That's right. And I think it's amazing that, especially in the environments I've worked in, we would architect to build absolutely 100% replica, duplicate environments where each of two twin data centers would be populated to 50%. So if either one died, everything could be moved across. So it was literally, right, what's the cost of deploying this application and then double it? which yep. is madness when you think about it, if you can avoid that. And the DR scenario that you've just talked about is yeah. a great example of how you can avoid that. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually very practical, but which is why the demos we're doing, 100, 100 demos, it's actually, the, now we lead with the DR as, a, as, a, as like, you know, the demo st uh, strategy because it's the most compelling argument. For a DR, people think of three things. Planning is complex. There's a fire drill. Is it going to work for me when I need it? And then when you yeah. push the button, it's going to work for me. We have solved all those things. We have built-in compliance checks. It checks for you. We do auditing so that you know that you can guarantee that the DR is going to work for you. So that actually is, if you can make the DR work for people, give them the confidence that it's going to work for you, you can cut costs for them, second data center, that's a no-brainer for every CIO. Yeah. Every business. So, you know, see, a couple of years ago, I thought I was concerned that people may not adopt the cloud, big enterprises for, for DR to the cloud. That has changed. In the last two years, Everybody's totally fine. Now we meet large enterprises, they're totally fine with doing DR to the cloud. Yeah. I think, thinking of some of the other examples here, Tim, it strikes me that as soon as you have got the idea, the ability to make your workloads mobile, you could do all sorts of things. So, for instance, one of the things we used to have real hassle with is consolidation and migration and, and repurposing data centers. So we would spend weeks, months, years 
massive projects, replacing storage equipment. We would have to do swing kit. We do all sorts of different scenarios to get applications moved around. And then it was even more of an issue if we had things like power outages and so on. It strikes me that one of the other use cases I think stood out for me immediately was imagine the ability to swing applications into the public cloud for a short time or a even a long time, and then use the public cloud, even if it was, say, two Amazons as a data protection pair, and then I can reorg my on-prem stuff, and then if I want to move it back, I can move it back. So it's not. this isn't going to just be about DR. It's going to be about workload management in lots of different locations. Great point. It's really about moving your data to where you want the application, or moving the data and applications to where you want to get the best services. So we're finding customers, too, that have gone to the cloud without a plan and are trying to pull back. So big piece. I'll give you a couple examples. Listen to Cezala talking about DR. We had a government customer buy several hundred K from us in Q4, and they're now buying a million dollars of control shift from us, DR. So that they, and what they said is in five compliance checks alone, it'll almost pay for itself, right? So the ability to actually be able to do a test and see the results of where you could have a hiccup or not, um, then be able to, is a, is a big thing. So Again, our thing on automation and, and showing people where things are is a big thing. To your point on data center uh, mobility or ability to move in or out, I was with the CEO last week, seven big data centers, healthcare, wants to get out of all of them, which back in the day you'd never hear healthcare institutions about wanting to get out of their data centers. They do now. Yeah. And understood from us that, hey, it's great. So I could actually, for example, I could, I could buy from Datrium subscription-based model to run all my primary backup on because backup's included in, the, in, the, in, our, in our base licensing. The hardware we've commoditized, since we run on anybody's servers, right, which isn't a definition of HCI, by the way, because you have that, you know, a company, yep. most HCI better scale out linearly. We don't. And then the storage piece, since it only does writes and we've compressed it and everything else, it's become, we've commoditized it. So he looked at it going, oh, if I buy your disk-based solution for around 60 terabytes, it's, you know, 17, 18K. Flash on that is about 45, 50K, right? If you look at a like uh, vendor like Pure, their list price and that's about 700k, right? They'll yeah. discount 80 percent off. But so we've commoditized that. So his statement was, then we allow for portability of that licensing, whether it's on-prem or in any cloud, to be moved. So the pricing, you know, he buys a million dollars from us today. That whole dollar for dollar could be moved to any one of our other services. So example, they want to move a workload to Amazon or Azure next year, they can do that. If they decide they want to move it back in, they can do that. The only cost they have is that little node they've bought that he looked at as discardable. And That's that real-life yeah. scenarios. I'll give you one other example. When I worked for a bigger Ray vendor, we sold them a $100 million deal, to your point, replica to replica. Yeah. Right? Huge manufacturer. They're looking now at getting rid of, it was 50 million, 50 million, getting rid of that whole 50 million. They've got to either refresh or go to the cloud. We're talking to them about bringing that down substantially. So your, your points are right. And that is a problem what we've set out to solve. So there are actually more than the DR use, there are four other use cases we identified. Okay. Because when people see that the ability to do this click and move everywhere, move anywhere you want to, so DR is a very practical use case. You can sell it. The other use cases we found is that people want to run sometimes test and dev. Mm -hmm. You push a button, you can test and dev. And then uh, the second one is maintenance. I can just want to do maintenance on this stuff, push a button, it'll fail over, and then you can do maintenance and sometimes bring it back. Yeah, bring it back, yeah. And the third one uh, the third one was analytics. Like every some, sometimes people run monthly reports, whatever. And uh, what they want to do is that be able to like run the workloads there because you can get massive, like there are a lot of Amazon tools you can like machine learning, things like that you can use there. So every month they have a lot of data. They can just run the workloads there, look at all the, collect all the data, and then bring it back. So there actually are multiple use cases. We wanted to go to market with one practical 
like a simple like a you know, yeah, money yeah. maker kind of thing. And are you seeing people do using those other use cases? I mean, customers are already doing that today. No, it's hard because uh, no, I mean, I mean, are they using things like the analytics? Even though you say that's a use case, are you seeing people looking at that and saying? I want to take your stuff and do that. They actually ask us this question. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah, so they are. We're they seeing them having wanted to, but not being able to, or we're enabling that to happen. Okay, so the reason I was asking that is that I talk to lots of people who say, oh, we could do this. Yeah. And it's great saying could do, but I'd rather hear when you say they are, we have got customers. No, so we have a button to fail over. Yeah. What we need is a button. It's the same technology. A button to say, run it here. Like, it's a slight subtle difference in basically failover versus run it here yeah. temporarily. There's a subtle difference, but it's the same technology and everything else. But you are talking to customers who are looking who to like do that. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, fair enough. Great. Okay. I think we're pretty much out of time here. So let's wrap up and say, call to action. Where can people follow up and find more about this? Because obviously, you've just had a big release of uh, the product. So there's new features and everything in there. Where should people go to to find out more? You find out a lot now on our website, daydream.com. Um, you can sign up for a demo there, which we do every day of the week. We have people that just do demos now. Right. Um, so they're welcome to log on, do a demo. Um, we've even got uh, labs set up where they can do a virtual workload test on some of the things they have. So they can come in a sandbox and play with our technology. Um, they can do all that from our website. Great. Okay. Well, Tim, Susanna, thank you very much for your time. It's been a fantastic discussion, and uh, look forward to catching up soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Thanks for Chris. coming in. You've been listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast from Architecting IT. For show notes and more, subscribe at hybridcloudpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Architecting IT, or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Architecting IT. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.